Well, good morning. <clears throat> I hope that you have all had a joyful Christmas. And Mason already mentioned to you that this morning we are toward the end of the first week of Christmas tide. How many of you, by show of hands, knew before Mason mentioned it what Christmas tide was? You? That's fine. I didn't know what it was until like a year ago or, or less. Um, I was downstairs going to the bathroom, but he probably explained this that Christmas tide is the season of the liturgical year that we are in now, and it normally starts on the Christ on Christmas Day, 25th, and it goes traditionally until, what, January 5th, 12 days, where we get the 12 days of Christmas. 12, drummers drumming, so on and so forth. Um, now, unfortunately, this isn't a tradition that most Christians um, abide by and follow uh, nowadays. In, in our modern, maybe our Western sensibilities, um, we found it fit to condense the mystery of the incarnation to one day, as though we could adequately understand and comprehend the word being made flesh and dwelling among us in a day. It's almost as if when the clock strikes midnight on Christmas night, all the magic and wonder is sucked from the room, and we're left in the rest of the year just to, to deal with it. You know, and make our own magic. Well, what I would like to recover this morning, hopefully, uh, by way of remembrance of God's faithfulness and his goodness, is some of that wonder and magic. Because what really happened in Christmas is a huge, momentous occasion that is ultimately significant for our lives forever. And in, in some ways, you know, we celebrate Christmas as believers all year round. Now, I'm not telling you to you know, leave your lights up all year round or leave the Christmas tree up all year round. But what I am saying is that the light has come and the darkness has not overcome it. And I'm saying that when you look at that garland and what it represents and that green Christmas tree, you are, you are looking at the typology of a God who is ever faithful, ever holy, ever just. Our God is ever green in the sense that he never fades, he never changes. As thou, as thou hast been, thou forever will be as the hymn tells us. The story that we reenact every year is that the silence of God was broken that night by a baby's cry. And that sound and that cry ascend and they grow louder and louder with every soul that is saved and cries out with the spirit of adoption, Abba, Father. <clears throat> so with that said, if you would, would you open your Bibles to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5? Um, this is the text we're going to start with. This morning in church, these are the words of the Lord, the one who took on flesh to seek his people. Let's give attention to them in reverence as we read Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth and the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw my holy city... New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I, saw, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, and we read a text that is heavy and pregnant with significance and meaning, I ask that your Holy Spirit would come and dwell with us in this place. That your Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would help me to discern what is true and what is worthy and cast off what is worthless and useless and false. Lord, would you reign supreme in this place this morning, in our minds and in our hearts. And as we open up the text and we, and we read about your covenantal faithfulness to your people, may we see the continuity of your faithfulness to today. Help us to, to recognize that you are still the faithful God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that you are still faithful to your people now, and that you are making all things new. Lord, would you help me to be faithful to your covenantal redemptive plan as I, as I fumble through this my stammering tongue this morning to, to present your word to your people. Lord, I am humbled, and I ask that you would be with me and with the saints here in this church as we take a journey into your word. Let us be edified in all truth, and it's in Christ's name we say amen. Amen. <clears throat> Over the last four weeks, and before I get started, where's that water medicine? Because I will be. Thanks. Better do it now than to stop the whole sermon later on. Um, over the last four weeks in the Advent season, we joined with ancient Israel in the longing and anticipation of a Messiah. We opened our eyes to the darkness around us, and we mourned and lamented the suffering in the world. Even some of us in this room lamented the suffering in our own lives and the lives of those in our community whom we love. We cry out for a God to come and put the world right, to make all things new. And after that season of intense waiting and longing, we now emerge into this joyous season of Christmas tide. That means that if we in Advent waited for Israel, waited with Israel for the coming Messiah, that waiting church is over. The promised Savior is here. And all you, like Mary, pregnant with anticipation, who wait for your, your beloved son to be born, to ransom you from your sins, the waiting is over. The Holy One is born. And all you who, lamenting the ever-darkening days of December, lit candles of hope like we did at that longest night service, the waiting is over because the light of the world has dawned on his people. The sun of righteousness has risen with healing in his wings. This village is Christmas, Christ-tide, Christmas-tide. It's the season of our Christ. The day of the Lord has come. And if Advent is the season of waiting, then we are now in the season of wonder. And what a wonder it is that Christ has fulfilled and perfected the law of God. Now, over these last several weeks, um, when Emily and I haven't had the pleasure of worshiping with you here, saints at Village, I listen to Mason's sermons via podcast in the car, normally when I'm at work. Um, and I've been listening from the car 
as Mason's taken up the absolute gauntlet that is commonly referred to as covenant theology. Um, <laughs> and likewise, you as a congregation, as I've heard, and I haven't had the experience with you, but I've been putting on my covenant glasses with you, push them up snug on the bridge of my nose, in order to have my world colored like you have with the covenantal beauty of God's redemptive plan. If you were here, and remember, you've already gone through several of these covenants, and I won't spend too much time on them, but you heard about the first week, the covenant of life, in which God made a promise to mankind, to Adam, the whole earth. Oh, wait, wait a minute, that's the Mosaic, that's Noah. Um, the covenant of life where Adam, who represented all of mankind, failed in obedience to God. And then there was the Noahic covenant in which God made a promise to mankind, the whole earth and every living creature that inhabits it, for all future generations, that he would never again destroy the earth. Then we learned about the Abrahamic covenant, God's promise to Abraham by which the Lord swore to bless him and multiply his offspring as numerous as the stars in the heavens, and that through them all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And you heard about the Mosaic Covenant in Sinai, that terrible mountain shrouded in fire and smoke upon which God's law was given to man and the priesthood was established to make offerings for those who would transgress against God's law. And you've heard about the Davidic Covenant by which God declared that he would raise up a descendant after him, king from the lineage of David, and that his throne and kingdom will be established forever. These echoes of the old covenant, these ancient promises reverberate through time, through God's story laid out for us in scripture. And we now find ourselves at the absolute greatest crossroads in the story of God, where the threads of Adam's choice, Noah's ark, Abraham's hope, Moses' stone tablets that contain the law, and David's lineage weave together this tapestry, if you will, of divine redemption. These promises have led us to a sacred moment in the story, and I really want us to understand that like, this moment where the old becomes the new is absolutely sacred. We've been led to a sacred moment in the story. This is the moment where all of those promises of old converge into one place, into one man. It's a story we reenact every time. This year, the silence, the waiting, the longing, when all at once we find ourselves standing at this threshold of the new, the renewed covenant at the birth of our Lord Christ. Today I want to explore three key points that unfold in this divine redemptive plan. Start, the first one I want to discuss is the need for renewal. We've spent a lot of time, or Mason spent a lot of time, going over these old covenants, explaining them to you. And, and we know what a lot of them were like, and we're going to go over them again, but, but there was absolutely a need for renewal. In other words, why did the old covenants need to be renewed in the first place? The author of Hebrews has this to say about the Old Covenant. And for those of you who are not who are note takers, I'm in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. If you're not, you don't have to follow me in scripture. I'm probably going to go through a lot of these pretty quickly. But if you are a note taker, feel free to write down the verse, chapter and verse, and uh, book, and you can go back to it at your leisure. But this is what the author of Hebrews has to say about the Old Covenant in chapter 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, 
There would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It's Hebrews 8, 7. So what is this text saying? What is it telling us about the old covenant? Well, the author of Hebrews is telling us that the old covenant is flawed. And if you're like me, you might ask something along the lines of, well, wait a minute. I remember the story from Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and birds, fish of the sea, water, so on and so forth. And it was what? It was good. It was very good, in fact. Um, so then how could the creator of the universe, perfect in all his ways, have established a covenant that is flawed? That's a big question. It's a scary question. But it's the type of question that we, church, as Christians, should not be afraid to ask because the Lord is faithful and he has given us the answers to these questions. They are in his scripture. Remember what a covenant is. It's a binding agreement or a pact between God and humanity in which he outlines the terms and conditions, if you will, of his relationship to us and of ours to him. In the beginning, God made a covenant with Adam. God blessed them, told them to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth, and to have dominion over the beasts of the earth. And then here's the text from Genesis, that, and the Lord God commanded man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the one tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Here, in Eden, the very cradle of humanity, the first covenant was established between God and man. The covenant of life, as you discussed, do what I have commanded and you will live. Do what I have forbidden and you will die. These are the terms of the covenant. And the covenant, I will argue, is good. The problem was not with the covenant, nor was the problem with the creator but with the creation. We know the story all too well, for it is our story. Adam and Eve failed to be obedient to what God has commanded, and their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Adam, who stood as the representative for all mankind, broke God's covenant of life, bringing death to all mankind. Through this rebellion, all of mankind are now what? We are now covenant breakers. God, the creator, did not break his promise to man, the creation. The creation broke its promise to its creator. The command to abstain from the forbidden tree carried with it the weight of consequences. We all reap what Adam has sown. Adam's disobedience marked the introduction of sin into the world, the birth of the sin problem, casting humanity into a state of brokenness and separation from God. But what can we say about this sin problem? Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, the very image of God, with the express purpose to glorify him and to enjoy intimate communion with him everlasting. You and I, saints, were created for the very same purpose. And that will be restored 
We read about it in Revelation 21. Behold, I am making all things new, and we will get there. But for now, I want to take a moment because this understanding of what, why we needed renewal is the absolute core of, of the beauty and the poetry of what God renews in the new covenant and in the new creation. For a moment, imagine Adam and Eve and their brokenness and their separation from God. Take a moment right now and try to dwell on what they experienced. Try to imagine what that loss must have felt like. That sweet, holy communion with the Creator, broken. Do you remember the weight of your shame? Of your nakedness? Of your feeble attempts to cover it up? All the fig leaves you tried to sew onto yourself to, to cover up your nakedness and your shame? How about your separation from God before he had mercy on you and drew near to your broken heart? This fall was great. And the corruption was radical. It wasn't just an accident. It wasn't just a mistake. It wasn't superficial, not just a flesh wound. It went to the very core of the human soul. It wasn't something you said oops about. In fact, I believe that if there were words at all in that moment, it would have been the self-pronouncement of a curse as Isaiah spoke when he saw the temple and he beheld the fearsome glory of the king seated on the throne high and exalted. And he said, woe to me, for I am ruined. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin, Romans 5.12. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, verse 1. Something had to be done. Something has to be done about this sin problem. How desperately we needed to be renewed and reinstated to communion with God. The passage from Hebrews again says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them. God finds fault, not with the covenant, with the people, the creation, the covenant breakers that we are, apart from God, apart from Christ. And he goes on to say, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And in the meantime, Adam and Eve are fruitful, and they do multiply. They're holding on by faith to that thrill of hope for redemption, that proto-evangelium, or the first gospel that you talked about a couple weeks back. Probably hoping in silence that every new child that is born will be the one destined to crush the serpent's head and restore them to holy communion with God. And like a match struck in a dark room, there's a little bit of light and just an echo of hope for redemption. And as the story progresses, we see the subsequent covenants, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic. They emerge as responses to the sin problem. And while each covenant addresses specific aspects of humanity's fallen condition, None provide a permanent and complete solution by themselves. Which brings me to my second point, the promise of renewal. We are promised renewal. 
while these covenants are incomplete solutions, they set the stage, if you will, for Emmanuel. If you've been paying attention to Pastor Mason's sermons over the past several weeks, you may notice that these covenants build upon one another. They point to something greater that is to come. They, those covenants themselves, were never intended to be the thing that crushes the serpent and puts an end to the sin problem. Rather, they serve to lay the foundation and framework for the one who will come and the one who will crush the serpent. And first, we see the Noahic covenant play out. Noah and his family exit the ark, the wooden object of their deliverance. I'll leave that there for you to chew on. And they emerge into a new earth for all intents and purposes. Noah builds an altar to the Lord and what? By faith makes a sacrifice. When God receives a sacrifice, he says, then, to Noah, then God said to Noah and to all his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, I establish my covenant with you that you shall never that, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Genesis 9, 8 through 17, with some of the middle cut out. Um, in the first covenant, this is the first covenantal installment since the flood. There's kind of been this, this thrill of hope for Adam and Eve from the proto-evangelium, that you know, I will put en enmity between you, the serpent, and Eve, and your offspring will crush his head and he will bruise his, his heel. That was hope for Eve, for Adam and Eve. And they probably looked for every generation after that, hoping that that next promised seed would be their next child or their grandchild or their great-grandchild or so on and so forth. They lived a long time back then. Um, but this is the first covenantal installment since the flood when God makes this promise to Noah and the earth and the creatures on it. God makes known his commitment to his creation. And he makes it clear in no uncertain terms that he desires to make things new. In this Noahic covenant, we see the shadow of Christ's redemption. We also see the promise of a renewed earth. Then moving on, we see the Abrahamic covenant, starting out in Genesis 12 and going for a few chapters. But 12, 1 through 3 says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation so that you will be a blessing. And Abraham's response a few chapters later is that Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God's prom God promises to give Abraham descendants, a land to call their own, and that through his descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this Abrahamic covenant establishes a further framework here to God's covenantal plan. It establishes the foundation for God's relationship with the people of Israel. Also, the promises made to Abraham, which he believed by faith, foreshadow the ultimate blessing that comes through Christ. Next, we see God's covenant with Moses. You remember the story of the burning bush. God appeared to Moses in that fearsome way to call him to lead his people out of Egypt. Despite feeling inadequate, Moses accepts God's call, ultimately by faith. 
you know, despising the, the courtly, lavish life and identifying with the suffering of his people before he even really knew that they were his people. He believes God's promise by faith. And in spite of his own internal felt inadequacies, determines to have faith in the Lord and trust him and follow his will and follow his, his purpose and do what he says. And wow, what a, what a thing Moses did. Can you imagine going to the, the civil magistrate of your time today and saying, let my people go? Just as one guy with a staff. Man, what faith there was there. And it justified it. We'll see later. And here's the text from Exodus 19. Because through God's faith, through Abraham's faith, the Lord promised the law to guide his people through Moses. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. God gave to Moses the Ten Commandments and established the Levite priesthood on Sinai, that fearsome mountain of fire and smoke. And it's there that Israel is called into a deeper covenant relationship through which they will be, quote, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Remember when Adam sinned against God in the covenant of life? He broke that covenant of life. This Mosaic covenant begins a really substantial work of just reestablishing the terms of that relationship. It reestablishes what, part of what was lost in the covenant of life that God made with Adam. It reestablishes a law, any terms and conditions, a relationship between God and his people, Israel. He establishes a law that's better suited to man's imperfections with a priest who is a shadow of Christ, who is able to atone for the sins of the people. The law not only provides a moral framework for a community to live by, but it also emphasizes the importance of obedience to God's commands and faith in his promises. And then finally, we have the Davidic covenant, which you've, spoke, you've talked about this stuff. You guys know this. But in the beauty of God's design, the Davidic covenant unfolds in a different way than all of the other covenants that we've heard of thus far. Here's the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7. When your day, and this is the prophet Nathan, comes to David and, and gives this prophecy from the Lord. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. God speaks to David through the prophet and essentially tells him, hey, your family line, king, is going to continue. And in fact, I'm going to raise up one of your descendants after you, and he will have a kingdom that lasts forever, that never dies, a kingdom that never ends, that has no end. David's faithfulness is evident in this response. It's the first thing he does when he gets this, he goes directly to the temple and offers up prayers of gratitude and songs of thanksgiving to God for his faithfulness and his goodness. But here's the interesting thing. This is the difference of the Davidic covenant from the other ones that we've heard so far. Nowhere in this covenant is there a single condition 
I don't know if you've noticed, I hadn't noticed that until I kind of came to the text. There is no condition to this covenant. It's not contingent upon David's faithfulness or obedience or him making the proper sacrifice or not eating the wrong fruit. Here in this covenant, God presents a covenant to David that is unconditional for the first time. And this is an absolute assurance, and it points directly to the prophecy of Christ, who will come and step into his role as the eternal king. Regardless of our obedience, Christ will come and step into his kingdom and assume his throne. Regardless of whether or not we are faithful to him, he will reign and he will rule. And this is the covenant, covenantal promise of the Davidic covenant. And this is where we start to find all of these covenantal threads woven together, all the dots connected, if you will. And maybe you see a common theme emerging here. I hope you do. Throughout all these covenants, from Adam to David, God is establishing the groundwork for Christ to reign as the eternal king and the great high priest of our confession. Noah, Abraham, Moses, these men all believed by faith before they could receive the promises of God in Christ. Their acts of faith justified them, though they did not yet understand the fullness of God's plan. They justified them because the ultimate object of that faith was Jesus Christ. Throughout all of time, when they believed in God's promises, they were justified because they believed not only in, the, in God and his promise in that moment, but his plan. They believed in the plan of God to redeem all things. And it wasn't just limited to their scope of their life in that moment or that choice. When Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, he didn't just believe, yeah, uh, sure, I'll uproot my family and we'll go to Canaan and, and I'm sure things will work out. He believed that God would be faithful not only to him, but to his offspring forever. A thousand generations, you know? And the Lord was faithful because we know on this side of history that Christ was born and that Christ died for our sins, that he is the king, the eternal Davidic king that was promised, and he is the great high priest of our confession to replace Aaron and the Levite priests. The acts of these men, their acts of faith justified them because the object of their faith was Jesus Christ. Christ is preeminent. This is the theme. This is the ultimate theme of covenantal faithfulness, that, that Christ is preeminent. The word in the beginning, the word in the end. In Christ, we'll see, this come, we'll see all of these covenants come together. I'm going to try and put these together. Um, and I hope that this is eloquent enough to, in some way, tie all of these points together in a way that helps us understand the fulfillment of Christ throughout those covenants. In Christ, the Alpha and Omega, every covenantal promise finds its complete and perfect realization. He, Christ, is the ark of eternal safety and deliverance in whom Noah believed. He is the universal blessing to all nations in whom Abraham believed. 
He is the perfect high priest of our confession who ever lives to intercede for us and the perfect blameless Passover lamb whose blood satisfies the just retribution of the law of Moses. He redeems humanity who has fallen totally, utterly, with utter redemption from the wages of our sin and offers eternal life to all who believe and his kingdom has no end. And here I'll make my third and final point, which is the reality of renewal. I'm kind of closing down on this on this point, but the reality of renewal. That we don't just we don't just we aren't just renewed in theory. We aren't just renewed in a temporal way, in like a, a way that is bound to time that's going to have an end. That because Christ's reign as King and Priest has no end, His promises and this covenant has no end. And it is a reality for us today. And your call to worship here at Village this morning, I didn't know this was in there. I, I hoped that it would be, actually. But Mason, in his wisdom and understanding of, you know, probably what I was going to preach about, more or less, knew that I was going to want to come to this verse. Um, your call to worship was Hebrews 12, 22. And a couple of verses past that. And I want to read that again. It's in your call. You can, I mean, you can follow along in the, in the liturgy if you want, but... You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to his sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Cain, or the blood of Abel. If you've been following along with your covenant glasses on, this passage from the book of Hebrews, like many others we've read today, is dripping with covenantal language. But what sets this one apart is that it isn't speaking loosely of a covenant in our distant future that we may not see in our lives it's different than God's covenant with Abraham that he believed in and hoped for but never saw and died before he received. The author of Hebrews is telling us that this day, this very morning, when we come to worship and we draw near to our Christ, who is our Redeemer, who is our King and is our priest in our Passover lamb, that when we come to him this morning, we have not come to the old. We have not come to the fearsome Mount Sinai with the fire and the smoke. But we have come to Zion, to the city of the living God, and to New Jerusalem. Our kingdom, our worship this, this very morning is in heaven, the heavenly kingdom, in the presence of God, our judge, the judge of all. And in the presence of the great cloud of saints that went before us, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, David. That's where our worship is. Our worship is ascended because Christ brought heaven down in this covenant, in this new covenant. There is something special happening here and sacred. And that's why I say that this moment is a sacred moment. It means an infinite amount that 
Christ has fulfilled the, those old covenants and perfected them in his, in his person and work and nature and ministry. Our worship this very morning is in the presence of God in heaven. And we are led there by Jesus, who by his blood brings us near to dwell with the Father, for we are his people and he is our God. So with that covenantal context, I want to go back to that, to that uh, passage of Scripture that I started with, Revelation 21, 1 through 5. I haven't spent a lot of time on it because I wanted to introduce it in the beginning, and I wanted to go through this covenantal framework. I wanted to insert Christ and hopefully paint well enough for us to understand how he fulfills those old covenants, completes them and perfects them forever in perpetuity. And then I wanted to come back to this verse so that we can read it with new covenantal eyes, eyes that can behold and understand a bit of this new covenant. Let's read that again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Interesting that the sea was no more, by the way. We talked about Noah and the ark. The Lord said, never again would I destroy the earth with water. The sea is no more. I'm going to leave that one there, too. I just thought of that. That one's free. Um, <laughs> for, the, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And he, God himself, will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And I hope you can put that together and see the covenantal language that is in this passage in Revelation this morning. And I would like to propose something that you may or may not have given a whole lot of thought to, but I believe that this is true based on what we've discussed about this covenantal faithfulness and framework. That when we read in, in Revelation chapter 21 about the new heaven and earth, we are reading about the new covenant. These two things are one and the same. And while this passage still speaks to an ultimate renewal at the end of the age, that there will be an ultimate culmination of the promises of God at the end of the age when Christ comes in fearsome glory and sets everything absolutely, finally right. We are also talking about a present reality. There is in this passage a hope for today and a hope for tomorrow. It is a present reality and something we should draw near to often because there is an ongoing renewal for our tired souls there. It's what we're doing when we come to worship here, village. When, that, when, we, when we read that call to worship in Hebrews 12, that our worship is in heaven, our worship is in the presence of God, 
in the presence of the angels and the saints that have gone before us and are made perfect in God's presence. Our worship is with Christ. We are led there by Christ who has gone before us and presented his blood as an atoning work to give us passage into that new heaven, into that new earth, that redeemed and ultimately satisfied glory, that Christ gives us passage to that. And we should draw near to it often because there is, renew, there is a renewal for our souls there. There is an anchor for our souls, a steadfast anchor for our souls in Christ who has gone into the inner place behind the curtain. There is a hope for tomorrow. There is pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. We just sang the song. Blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. And in that kingdom reality, we can run the race, enduring to the end, knowing that our lion lamb, our priest and our king, has brought this heavenly kingdom down and lifted us up to join it. And his kingdom has no end. Church, we live in the reality of the new covenant, in the reality of the new heaven and the new earth, by which Christ is making all things new. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this holy and sacred moment where we know that right now we are in your presence. We are in the presence of the living God. Lord, may we come to your presence rightly and with reverence and honor and holiness, knowing that we are brought there and only given admission by the blood of the Son and by his ministry as our high priest of our confession. Lord, we confess. We ask to be raised up to life in Christ. We ask for the, the, the renewal of our souls in this heavenly kingdom. Would you give us eyes to see your kingdom, Lord? That your kingdom has come. And it will increasingly invade this earth. And your will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, it's all these things we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.